Grab your worship guide if you would. Turn to the center so that you can take some notes with us. We are kicking off a brand new series. We're simply calling Blurred Lines because our culture is shifting and God isn't. Our world is changing and God hasn't. Amen, everybody? We believe in a God who stays the same, who his truth stands the test of time. And today, as we're kicking off the series and over for the next few weeks, we're actually going to be jumping into some of these areas where I really really believe the world has tried to kind of confuse all of us because if you can't see something clearly, you're going to be hard pressed to attain it. If you can't see where you're going or where you're supposed to end up, it's going to be real hard to get there. And over the next few weeks, we're going to try and tackle how to engage with a world that seemingly is more vile than ever, has more sin than ever, more struggle than ever. It seems like everywhere you turn, there is some sort of confrontation with a Christ-like life. I don't know if you know this, but currently still in the world, there's estimated to be 27 million people who are living in slavery currently. And when you begin to imagine what's going on in our world and kind of see these situations, you realize that it is time for us to really live a Christ-like life. Amen, everybody? And it's time for us to bring that Christ-like life into our world, not with anger, not with frustration, not with fear, but filled with the grace and the truth and the word of God and everything that we do. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to jump into some of these areas that have seemingly gotten blurry. They really aren't blurry before God. They've just gotten blurry in our culture. God hasn't changed. He remains the same. I love how the scripture tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, all right? And so we're gonna take some time to dive into some of the touchy subjects uh, over the coming weeks. You need to kind of prepare yourself. Some of the most challenging ones on how to deal with people who believe things entirely differently than we do. Like it's, it's an entire different approach. How do you love them and how do you engage with them? And what I love is that you look at the life of Jesus, Look how he inter- interacted with the world. He somehow had a power and, and a grace in his life to, to do what is most important, to tell people truth, but also give them grace in the moment. Uh, to show you a little bit more of how we can do this, I'm gonna take you to an Old Testament book of the Bible. It's actually an historical account. The name of the book is called Daniel. We're gonna read through over the next few weeks quite a few portions of the book of Daniel because Daniel was a follower of Christ. He was a follower of God but he actually had the opportunity to work in government. He had an opportunity to serve, and over, over uh, the span of three different kings, he was able to lead many of them to God. He was able to stand up for God and live a godly life in a very, very ungodly culture. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, the Old Testament portion of your Bible is just largely the history of God's interaction with the people of Israel and how he was constantly trying to draw them into a deep relationship with him. And the New Testament really helps us to understand what was going on in the Old Testament, helps us to see how Jesus was talked about all in the Old Testament. They just didn't realize that they were waiting on Jesus. And so the New Testament is where we study and how, uh, and really apply how we should live as Christians. But the history of the Old Testament really helps us to kind of dive in and say, wow, that's how, that's how one person lived in a completely pagan culture and a culture that was the opposite of everything God had for them. 
Your Old Testament starts with the first five books of the law. It gets into a great history section, and then it gets into kind of the poetry of the Psalms and the Song of Solomon, the Proverbs, and then there are what we call the major prophets and the minor prophets, all right? The major just means the book was longer, and the minor just means the book was a little bit shorter. But the book of Daniel is stuck right in the historical section of your Bible. So your Bible isn't put together in chronology. It's put together based upon these areas. And so the book of Daniel is stuck right in the historical part of our Bible, but I really believe it's a prophetic message for us today. I believe it's a message that actually speaks to how we should live and how we should engage with a culture that seems to be shifting further and further from God and how we can actually example in the midst of that culture how to love God and how to do it with grace and favor. We're going to pick up the story of Daniel's life in Daniel chapter 1 in just a moment. I want you to know that Daniel and the people of God had kind of rebelled against God. And for me, it's kind of a picture of where America is today. America was founded on a simple principle of in God we trust. And our laws were put together in order to encourage faith, not to dismiss faith, but our culture seems to be pushing that back and saying, no, 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 we don't need those things. And, and Daniel, his, his situation where he's at, he's actually been, uh, he grew up a young boy. He's about 16 years old and, and he grew up in Israel. He grew up following God, but because the people of God dismissed the values of God, God allowed them to be overtaken. He allowed them to be exiled. So they were just taken and put into slavery in an entire different nation. This is where we pick up the story. Daniel chapter one and verse one. You guys follow me today? If you got it, say, I got it. All right, y'all are with me. Here it goes. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He attacked them. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Because of their rebellion, God said, you know what? I'm going to let you fall into the hand of this evil Babylonian king. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So he took the blessing of God. He took the favor of God, the great things that they had, and he put them in his own treasury. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. Y'all want to try that with me? Come on, say it together. Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials. You did good, all right? To bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome. How many of y'all say, that's Corey over here right now, right? He said, I'm going to follow. I want you to find some handsome. I'm looking for people who are showing aptitude of every kind of learning. They're well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. This is so important, those two words, the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Wanted them to begin to see the world through a different language and through a different historical account to begin to persuade them to see the world differently. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Can somebody say amen for that one right there, right? And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah. Their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four were followers of God. They had lived for God in their culture, and then they were taken captive and exiled from their homeland. 
And in the process of wanting them to become like them, pagan and Babylonian, the first thing that they did is they gave them new names. Read it, Daniel 1 and 7, it says, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. Listen, I need to get a blessing from y'all today from just learning all these names, all right? To Hananiah, he called Shadrach. To Mishael, he called Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, some of you, if you grew up in church environments, you've watched a VeggieTales video with your kids. Anybody watch VeggieTales with your kids? Come on, show me the VeggieTales. Rack, Shack, and Benny is what they called them, all right? And I appreciate VeggieTales for this, all right? And you should too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is who he's talking about, Rack, Shack, and Benny, all right? But... I think it's uh, interesting that in the, the onset of this relationship with Daniel and his three friends, that the first thing they do is they give them new names. I want you to write this down with me. Culture's goal is to change our identity. The very first thing they're trying to do is to change the way you see yourself, the way that you process who you are and where you're supposed to go with your life. I want to I wanna dive a little deeper into this because these names are so important because I want you to see that they're just the opposite of everything that God had for you. Now, I also want to say, if you did not grow up in a church environment, maybe your parents, you know, they, they really didn't think too much. They just gave you the family name. Uh, people of God quite often, historically, before they would name a child, they would pray and ask God what they should name that child, and they would ask for a prophetic word. They would ask for God to speak to them what to name their child. In my family, I'm the third child, and my parents got saved after the second child and before I was born. I was the first of their six children that actually prayed and said, what should we name this child? And my dad said, before the doctor ever said I was going to be a boy, he said, He's gonna be, you're going to have a man child, everyone. I feel like we just climbed in the jungle book. And uh, he said, we're going to call him Joshua Joseph. He gave me two biblical names that we won't dive into it. But what you find historically is that people of God gave prophetic names to their children, believing what they would bring to the world. I want to show you their biblical name, their God-honoring name, then I want to show you the cultural name that they tried to give them. Daniel, here's what Daniel's name means. Daniel's name means God is my judge. It means like God is the standard. God is the one I'm going to stand before. His entire name was declaring to the world that God is, God is the one that we're going to stand before. Belteshazzar means lady, protect the king. Wow, you see the opposite that this is? One that's uh, lifting up God and another that's even confusing his gender. And listen, in every pagan culture, I just want you to hear this, open your heart, in every pagan culture, there has been sexual confusion and gender confusion. In every culture that doesn't hold the standard of who God is, this is where we are in our world, there's just confusion. The second, Hananiah, God has been gracious. So every time you call your kid's name out, you're saying, God has been gracious. Would you try it with me? Come on, Hananiah, Hananiah, God has been gracious. They gave him the name Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. So instead of having this close spiritual relationship with a father's heart where you're close to God, no, 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 you should be afraid of God. And this, and this is what has happened in religion, that if people even fear God, they think he's like the, the Wizard of Oz. He's holding the lightning bolt in heaven, just waiting for you to, to make a mistake so he can turn you into a grease spot, okay? That's not who God is. Amen, everybody? He has been gracious to us. 
And so he's trying to redefine our relationships. He's trying to redefine our spirituality. That's what culture is trying to do, how we see God. The third in the name is Mishael. Who is what God is? I think Mishael was just a worshiper. He walked in and said, hey, ain't nobody like my God, right? No one can touch who he is and what he has done in our lives. Here's what Meshach means. I am despised and humiliated. From a worshiper to someone who feels like they're unwanted or unimportant. The last, Azariah, Yahweh, God has helped me to Abednego. No, you're a servant of another God. No, 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 God hasn't helped you. You serve another God. What I want you to see in this story is what happens in our culture, and that is that culture is trying to re, uh, re-identify or cause us to identify with culture rather than with God. And listen, we believe that we are called to be Christ-like. We believe that we are made in the image of God. That doesn't mean we are perfect yet. That does mean that one day we will be with God. And because we are made in his image, we uh, have to make sure that we push back against this idea. Write this down with me. When culture shifts, we must know who we are. We have to come back to who we are. God is not confused with who he made. Say it again. God is not confused in who he made in you. You are here on purpose. You are not here on accident today. And listen, I, I know there's the whispers of science, there's the whisper of all these things that are misused and abused to try and convince us. But here's what I need you to know. The word of God has stood firm since the beginning of time. The word of God is the standard of who we are. And so we have to push back and say, no, no, this, I'm gonna know who I am. The story goes on in, in verse eight. He continues to kind of push against them. and says, but Daniel, Daniel uh, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And so what they decided to do is that they're gonna give you all this food that we just read about. But Daniel and his three friends had been living a life that was honoring to God. They had been living a devout life. And so the next thing that culture will try to do is culture will try to compromise our standards. They're going to come right along and say, you know, I mean, uh, did did God really say that you shouldn't eat that apple? Uh, Did, did, you know, I mean, should, I mean, are you sure that, 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 you know, two drinks is all you should have? Quiet in this Amish church. Recently, one of our team members said, you need to stop picking on the Methodists, okay? And so I've decided I'm gonna start picking on the Amish. Are y'all okay with that? Just kidding. If you grew up Amish, we love you. See, what happens is that as soon as God sets a standard forth, the enemy walks up and says, are you sure? See, he created Adam and said, it's not good for you to be alone. Can I get an amen from a man in this room, right? It's not good for you to be alone. And so he gave them a woman, but he didn't give them three women. He didn't give them five women. He didn't give them 74. Are y'all with me today? (laughs) Why? Because he knew what it would look like just to take care of one. (laughs) That's funnier than some of y'all laughing at right now, but it's true, it's true. See, immediately what the enemy walks in and tried to do is to take everything, every standard, everything that God created and say, no, one's not enough, you need two. No, 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 Uh, you you, you know, God gave you this to eat, no, no, eat this. And everything is just a contradiction 
So write this down. When culture shifts, we must reaffirm our convictions. We do believe in right and wrong. We do believe that there are right and wrongs in our world. If it feels good, do it. Doesn't work, everybody. Because what feels good to me probably hurts you. And listen, it's always, it's always the thief who wants to have locks on their doors, right? It's always the thief that wants locks on their doors, but no locks on yours. We just need a free society. We, we just need a free society. Why? Because they want to take advantage, but they want no advantage taken of them. And what I need you to understand is we have to reaffirm our convictions. We have to come back to there is a right and wrong. And if we get to choose what that right and wrong is, we live in a dangerous world. If we get to choose what's right and wrong, we live in a dangerous world because what's going to happen is the line's going to keep moving and moving and moving and moving and moving until there is no line. And then anything goes. Every culture that anything goes in fully collapses. There has to be boundaries. Why? Because you'll run off the bridge without them, everyone. Listen, I'm all about having bridges over water. How about you? I want bridges over water, but I know that without guardrails, I'm going to drive too fast and too far, and, and I'm going I'm to doze off one time, and then I'm going to be in the middle of the bayou, everybody. But if you accept that God is the one who gave us both the water and the bridge, and he put the guardrails to take you where he wants you to go, when you accept them and you don't try to run into them and you don't try to live life without them, you find that where you want to get, God will bring you. Preaching better than y'all are amening right now, but I need you to understand that it's a great picture of how we need to engage with God. The story continues because the, the culture that we live in will try to do more. It says in verse 9 that now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid that if I don't give you the food that you're supposed to, I'm afraid of my Lord the King who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? And the king would then have my head because of you. He said, listen, if I, if I don't take care of you like I'm supposed to, and you start getting frail and looking like you're not handsome as you were before, then the king is going to call me in for that. In verse 10, Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food with uh, and, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. I want you to know that all throughout Scripture, 10 is a number of testing. He gave the Ten Commandments to test our character and whether we draw near to God. He gave us the tithe. Malachi 3 says, test the Lord, what you're going to test God with. Daniel walked up and says, give me 10 days. Give me 10 days and show you that we will, we will actually be, able, be better off for this. Here's what happens. Um, culture will always create a confrontation with you. Culture is always going to test where you stand. As soon as you say, I'm going this direction, someone's going to pop up and say, is that the best direction for your life? Come on, this has happened to all of you. As soon as you declare a, a major in college that's God-honoring, somebody walks up and says, you sure you want to do that? They don't make that much money. 
That's not as fun as you think it is. They begin to question all those things. Culture is trying to confront everything. And what they want us to do is to step back and find us on our heels rather than our toes. They want us falling back and wondering what we should do rather than saying, no, no, no. I know who I am. I'm a child of the Most High God. My name is, is a name that honors who God is, not who this world is. So y'all follow me today. And, and I'm not worried about what you're eating and what you're drinking because I'm eating well in the kingdom of God. See, I'm going to affirm my convictions and the standards and, and that I don't need to say everything the world says is okay and bring it into my home. But listen, there's going to be a moment where it presses in on you. In our culture, it kind of presses in in our social media world. It kind of presses in just a little bit. Get the Facebook invitation to something you know you shouldn't look at, see, or be a part of. It begins to creep into our thought life. It gets into our hearts. And before long, we're living it in our hands. Here's the deal. We have to make sure that we respond the right way. Write it down this way. When culture shifts, we must respond. We must respond the right way. Instead of being angry and, and, and just walking in and flipping over the apple cart or retreating and pretending we don't know anything that's going on. No, no, no. There is a better response. And Daniel, Daniel, the way that he engaged with his culture was so different, so different than what we do. And he really was a, a foreshadow of when Jesus would show up on the scene. I think about how Jesus walked up and did things that were just counter-cultural to the world around him. That Jesus would engage with people that others had dismissed. Jesus would talk to those who were lame, those who were blind, those who had been rejected as unimportant in culture. We find Jesus over and over and over again, instead of uh, adhering to what people wanted, no, 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 he would engage with them and do so much more. You know, the only people that Jesus ever got frustrated with were religious people. You know, you never find Jesus angry at a sinner. Think about it. If he was angry at you, you'd be in trouble already. See, God has chosen not to pour out anger on us, but grace. See, God has chosen this window of time to pour out grace in our lives. I love how John 1 and 14 says this. says, the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. He started living with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Read the next line, come on. Full of grace and truth. Say it one more time. Full of grace and truth. Jesus had this uncanny ability in the middle of crazy situations to be both gracious and truthful. See, what we want is to kind of pick a side. And when you pick a side, you tend to divide from the other side. And when you pick a side, you begin to do things that you shouldn't do. But here's the deal. Truth, truth is God's standard. It's not your idea. It's not my idea. I, I, I've been telling my children since the moment they came out of the womb and prayed for them a lot when they were in the womb that it's not dad who's chosen what is right and wrong. It is God. It is not dad who's made you in my image. No, no, no. You're made in the image of God. I just like that you got my Italian nose along with it. Amen, everybody, right? <laughs> and my family, we say, you know, my dad's side, we gave you the Italian nose. My mom's side, we gave you the ghetto fabulous thing in the back. All right, everybody? Can I say that in church? Thank you, Ronnie. Ronnie said it was okay. I'm going to keep on going. I need you to understand that, that culture is pressing against this very subtly. Hey, you need, what's your truth? 
I'm going to share my truth. No, no, I'm pressing hard against it right now. There is no such thing as yours. And there's no such thing as mine. There is only truth. God's standard is the truth. John 17 and 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. When you resolve this in your life, you will understand how good God is. If you are going to continue to think that your way is going to be better, you're going to continue to find more pain than you ever intended to find in life. Truth, truth is God's word. But he said, I didn't just come in truth. He said, I came in grace. Grace is God's favor on your life. When you weren't favorable, when you weren't wanted, when you were the goose outside of the ducks, everybody, right? When you were the one who didn't look the same, looked like you didn't belong, he walked up and said, I'm picking you. I like this. This is good preaching right now. I think I might continue. See, the favor of God is when you didn't deserve it. When you deserved punishment, he gave you grace. Ephesians 2, 8 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. This is so, so important for you to understand. We have a tendency to say it's us against them. It's my way or the highway. And can I just tell you, uh, when you're engaging with the world with anger and frustration, all you're doing is pushing them away. If you're just approaching them with one side of the argument, you're going to push them away with your anger and just truth telling. But can I tell you, we've kind of fallen into this mindset, well, I'm just going to love them. I'm going to love them, and because I love them, it doesn't matter what they do. Can I just tell you, it's kind of crazy that we think loving someone, that we could actually love them more than God loves them. We think by not telling them the truth that we're loving them, by walking along through the journey with them and just saying, oh, it's okay, it's okay. No, no. Listen, God loves them more than you do. I know it's hard for us to fathom. He loves us more than we even love ourselves, and that's why he gives us grace and truth. He doesn't give us one or the other. He holds the tension between the two. Listen, without truth, we are corrupt. Without truth, we're just, we're just straight up corrupt. We don't know what to do. We don't know what's right and wrong. That's why God gave us the law. He gave us the good old Ten Commandments. My children right now are learning, memorizing these in school right now. Thou shalt not covet. What's that mean, Daddy? <laughs> don't look at my Cheerios the way you're looking at them, all right? That's what it means. <laughs> Without truth, we are corrupt, but without grace, we are condemned. Do you realize that we don't want one or the other? We need both. I don't want to be corrupt, and I don't want to be condemned, so I need both grace and truth. Without, without truth, we become worldly. Without truth, we begin to look like everything else other than God, but without grace, we become judgmental. Without, without grace, we begin to kind of judge other people and kind of tell them, oh, no, no, you, you, this is, you know, you ought to be here. Can I just tell you, if someone started the race you're in 100 yards behind you, who are you to look at their progress and determine that it's not as good as yours? Y'all hear me today? This is what religious people do. They're like, you know, well, I grew up in a godly home and I know when to cuss and when not to cuss. And you're still cussing, you know, and... 
and I can't believe you're a cusser, you know? And listen, you don't know where they came from. God's healing and dealing with things that aren't even near cussing, okay? And we've glorified cussing as though it's something that we got to run away from. Why don't we just deal with the big issues? <laughs> that was another good place to say amen for those of you. I saw somebody with a shirt recently that said, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. I said, I don't think that's appropriate for our church, but I think it's a reflection of our church sometimes. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they believe in a 51% gospel. What do I mean by that? They believe that I've got to do at least 51% in order to get in. So if Hitler is zero and Jesus is 100, I just need to be 51%. If the worst is this person who just genocidal maniac and the best is Jesus, I just need to stack up enough good behavior. But here's the deal. You can't. 51% won't tip the scales. You need 100%. In order to tip the scales, you need 100%. And you can't do that on your own. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Here's what I'm saying to you today. Without grace, we become judgmental. But truth without grace is really mean. It just is. And grace without truth is just meaningless. It just is. It's just meaningless. It's just, it doesn't mean anything because you're, there, there isn't something to build on. But truth and grace, write it down with me, it's medicine. It brings healing. It brings hope. It brings life change. And where our culture is trying to blur every line, you can, you can walk in grace and truth. You can be the one who stands out in school. You can be the one who stands out in your job that's not angry because of their sin. You love them more because of their sin. See, grace, grace is inviting us to be free. God, today, if you're struggling and holding something, we're not here to condemn you. No, no, no. The grace of God is inviting you to freedom, but it's the truth that will set you free. Y'all hear me today? We need both. And what I want in our culture in our culture that seems to be just back and forth, back and forth, where do we go? What do we, should we do? Where do we, I want us to be a church that in the middle of the blurry area, we just walk in and say, no, 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 there is a right and wrong, but let me love you through it. Let me love you enough to tell you that there is a right and wrong. Let me be there with you during the season where you're trying to figure out. So if you're confused about who you are and what God created you to be, you're in the best room you could be in this, in this world. Why? Because we're a group of people that will love you right where you are, but we are not going to leave you there, praise God. If we find you struggling, we're going to help you out of that struggle. If we find you overwhelmed, we're going to cover you and protect you. Because the Bible says that it's love that covers a multitude of transgressions. It's what we're going to do. It's why I love being a Christian. It's because I know who I would be without Jesus. Can I tell you, you would not like me. My personality um, my personality, I'm very, very details-oriented, very, I'm very truth-oriented. That's the best way to say it. And so growing up for me, it was my way or the highway. You did what I thought was right or you could die. Am I the only one? Come on now. Some of y'all are so life-giving. I was not. I was not life-giving. I grew up in a judgmental. I, I grew up in a place where everything, like everybody was counting everything I was going to do. And so I just, I ingested that. And that's who I became. I became the very thing that I hated. And so I would meet you. I'd give you about five minutes. If I didn't like you in five minutes, I'd never talk to you again. Y'all say, how could you do that, pastor? That's who I was without Jesus. 
See, Jesus, he gives you grace and truth, and he begins to say, no, now I love you, but you got to start being nicer. I remember one of my pastors years ago said, you know, you're, you're a little too task-oriented. You need to walk into that church and meet 100 people today and like all of them. I said, really? I got to like them too? <laughs> I told my dad one time, me and God are cool. It's all these stinking people I don't know what to do with. It's a famous story in John chapter 8. It's a famous, famous story. I want to read it to you and we'll close with the simple understanding. But I believe it's Jesus. I believe it's Jesus exampling the way for us. John 8 and 1 says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he came back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the preachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Every time I read this, I wonder, like, how did they know? You know, like, where were they that they knew this was, yeah, that's a whole nother. Whole. How'd you catch her? I mean, like, and where's the guy, you know? I caught her in adultery, but we don't know what happened to him. And they put her in front of the crowd. What an embarrassing moment. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again. Said, all right. I want you to let the first one, the one without any sin, to throw the first stone. I think what a powerful moment. If I get into the humorous side of me, I, I think when Jesus stooped down, he began to write the names of the mistresses of the other people who were there. I think he began to kind of say, hey, you got an issue. They kept demanding an answer, and he stood up again. He said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stood down again, and he started writing again. And he wrote in the dust, and when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I think that's interesting to me. Because see, if, if you were living in sin, but you wanted to pretend you weren't living in sin, you wanted to hide it, and then Jesus wrote down, and he wrote your mistress's name in the dirt, Sally. <laughs> Right? He didn't say anything. He just said, the person who doesn't have any sin in their life, you pick up the stone first. And he causes us to look back and say, no, 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 I'm a sinner without God. I'm in desperate need of a Savior. Beginning one by one from the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Crowd standing around. It's only him. Jesus stood up for the third time and said, woman, where are your accusers? Where are the people who are here to accuse you? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, no, they couldn't. Why? Because they all had sin too. Hey, welcome to One Hope Church. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And of ourselves, we're ungodly. But because of the grace of God, we can be godly. Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I, but go and sin no more. 
Did he call what she was doing wrong? Yes, he did. Is it sin? Yes. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to help you to live a life where you don't have to be marked by that any longer. You don't have to identify with your sin. You don't have to fight with that any longer. You can be the person I've called you to be. And today, church, what I'm saying to you in the midst of our blurry, blurry culture, we need to hold high God's truth, but we also need to freely give God's grace. We need to hold high truth, but we need to freely give God's grace. We need to hold high truth, and we need to freely give God's grace. Why? Because we're all in desperate need of that grace. But please, 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 in the name of love and grace, don't throw out the truth because we will fall apart. As we close today, would you bow with me for a moment of reflection and prayer? Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today and you need the grace of God to come home, maybe in your life you mostly met Christians who are filled filled with truth rather than truth and grace. If you're here today and you walked in carrying your past, you walked in carrying what happened to you and you're ready to change, you're ready to come home to God and you don't need religion, you need Jesus. If that's you, I won't embarrass you. I I won't ask you to stand. I will not ask you to come to the front, but with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today, you need to come home to God or even come to him for the very first time. I want you to whisper these words with me. It's a simple prayer. Say them right after me. Lord Jesus, I'm giving you my life. And I'm asking you to be my Lord and my Savior. God, would you forgive me for my sin? Would you forgive me for trying to live this life on my own? God, would you give me the power to follow you all the days of my life? 